Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio for Brooklyn. I'm your host, BGR Nathan, and with us today is Clara Ben Winkler, our co-host from Rockaway Writers Workshop. Welcome. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, guys. Happy Monday. So today we're going happy to- Happy cold, terrible, freezing <laughs> Monday, but still, happy Monday. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's been very cold out and, uh, you know, but it's the season, I guess. So no. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, <laughs> today- Today we're going to be talking a little bit from uh, doing some thought experiments from the uh, the pig that wants to be eaten, uh, hundred uh, armchair experiments for um, philosophers for armchair philosophers. I'm Julianne. just putting it out there though, yeah. regarding the title of this book. You know, I'm vegan, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> no uh, pig. Anyway, it's, it's interesting. Sorry. Go on. Yeah, uh, by Julian Barnes, I think is the author. Uh, Julian Barnes, right? Yep. Yeah. Great. Great. No, Julian Baggins. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, people can check that out. And then uh, we're going to be reading some of the thought experiments and discussing 
uh, various uh, offshoots and conversations. That well, come and, and yeah. um, importantly, we're going to be discussing uh, thought experiments that have to do with art and creativity um, as applied to, I guess, philosophical problems that artists face as they create and distribute their work and sort of addressing the ideas of inspiration and whatnot. Exactly, exactly. So these thought experiments are kind of inspired by various uh, philosophers and such, but we'll just be kind of taking them, kind of distilling the wisdom of various philosophers and looking at the yeah. experiments. As, so, and, yeah. But these are kind of standalone things, so feel free to interpret them in any way you wish. And if anybody would like to call in, uh, the number is 718-928-9732 to give your comments as we start getting going. Give your comments on the experiments or uh, or anything you like to talk about. So uh, why don't and, we start? Yeah. yeah, and Vijay and I are sitting here talking about the meaning of life, but we don't really know it. So if you have an answer to that, please call in and let us know. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> so uh, why don't we start off with the first one? Go okay, ahead. so um, the way this works is there are little anecdotes, little stories. And at the end, there are questions posed that have to do with um, a philosophical problem in the story. So Picasso on the beach. Roy looked down from the cliffs as the man drawing in the sand uh, continued with his work. The picture that started to emerge startled him. It was an extraordinary face, not realistically rendered, but seemingly viewed from many angles at once. In fact, it looked much like a Picasso. As soon as the thought entered Ray's mind, his heart stopped. He lifted his binoculars to his eyes and then felt compelled to rub his eyes. The man on the beach was Picasso. Roy's pulse raced. He walked this route every day, and he knew that very soon the tide would sweep in and wash away a genuine Picasso original. Somehow, he had to try to save it. But how? Trying to hold back the sea was futile. Nor was there any way to take a cast of the sand, even if he had had the time. Perhaps he could run back home for his camera, but that would at best preserve a record of the work, not the picture itself. And if he did this, by the time he got back, the image would likely have been erased by the ocean. Perhaps then he should simply enjoy this private view as long as it lasted. As he stood, he didn't know whether to smile or cry. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, I think it's really good that uh, we think about artistic value uh, sometimes tied very deeply to commercialism, divided very deeply to kind of its commercial value. And uh, for me, at least, the heart of that uh, enigma predicament has to do with um, how, what can I sell it for, you know? Yeah. And uh, as opposed to the impressions it leaves on you and the kind of transformation it could could potentially in, uh, you know, the last moment him smiling or crying is like, is very uh, on point, I felt. Yeah, what do you think? Well, I think it actually opens up lots of applicable questions, yeah. um, both from the perspective of those who create art and those who, I guess, consume, although I hate yeah. to say, I guess we'll say yeah. enjoy art. Yeah. Um, the idea of consuming art makes me think of somebody like okay. ripping a canvas, uh, canvas apart and eating it. <laughs> Um, okay, so first of all, there's the idea of why the artist is creating the work in the first place. If you think about it, um, musicians practice all the time, often by themselves. Mm. And who knows how beautiful that might sound? Who knows if somebody is improvising and coming up with something that could be the next great masterpiece of music? Because it all happens 
by themselves, right? But musicians still practice. And same with dancers. Um, I think with visual art and writing, it becomes a little bit more complicated because by nature of the medium, there exists a record of the work put out there. Mm. So there's, if we think about this story, maybe Picasso is just tired of creating work for other people yeah. and is enjoying the practice of creating images. Um, but then there's also... I think one of the really important important applications of this is the way that we enjoy art and communication in the age of social media, in the age of, and if you've read um, Susan Sontag's on photography, uh, in that long essay, she discusses how the capacity to take a photograph has changed the way we see the world. Um, and if you think about that and apply that to smart mo- smartphones and Instagram and Facebook, whatnot, um, it seems like our instinct to record everything is starting to, at least in my opinion, get in the way of our actually experiencing things. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I mean, I think that uh, definitely one thing I would say about the artist process is that what we have is like an emerging from our unconscious or our uh our deep impressions that we have those deep imprints that we have within ourselves an emerging of that and sometimes we're not even fully aware of it like the impression that life leaves on us uh consciously or in a conscious way an intellectual analytic level that we're able to call to mind immediately mm-hmm. like what's the impression this the studio leaves on you oh i feel like that then, then the imprints it leaves on you on a deeper level are sometimes things that we're not always fully aware of. Mm-hmm. So with art, I feel like it brings up that 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 deeper um, deeper level and brings it to our conscious awareness. So you're so talking sense, about yeah. viewing art, viewing art rather or even than art that we're producing. Okay. With art as because as an artist, we're both the artist as well as the the viewer. We're kind of right. creating and then we're viewing it. So um, in some level, the idea that we're fully in control of what we're creating, that mm-hmm. we're consciously creating. Uh, you know, kind of with direction is sometimes lost on uh in the artistic process. You yeah. Know? Well, so, I, yeah. I guess in terms of the um the Instagram reference here, I wasn't so much talking about Picasso on the yeah. beach. I was thinking of Roy standing up there, pulling out his iPhone, snapping a couple of pics, and hashtagging it. Yeah. And po- posting it to Instagram, and then walking away because the moment had been social media fied. Oh, true. And true. and so. Would he, without a camera, he's going to stay there until the very end, until Mm. the tide comes in. If he had a smartphone on him, would he take the picture and then walk off looking down at his phone, seeing how many likes he got while Picasso continued to draw in the sand? Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, I think that uh, when it comes, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, generally speaking, I'm not so, uh, I think social media has to do with, um, it's your relationship with it. So I think definitely when you have. A relationship with it where you're kind of as you're saying this scenario where the guy is taking a picture and then quickly moving away you want to still appreciate it and still allow yourself some time to percolate but i'm definitely guilty a little bit of that uh-huh. of like uh you know kind of thing like i'll categorize this for later i'm not in the mood right now or something like right. that and taking a quick picture and then and moving away but um, do you ever actually go back and look at those yeah, I think so. Okay, a bit. Yeah, so I you're thought, yeah. you are a yeah. rare, yeah, <laughs> yeah. A, a rare gem in, <laughs> in the world of social, social media. media. Yeah. Um, 
But oh, can I ask you this, yeah. DJ? Yeah. Have you bought a notebook yet? Uh, I have. Uh, no. Are you I are you like ever going to buy a notebook, notebook, notebook and bring it yeah. to workshop when you yeah, come and write with us? I have notebooks. Because the whole... I track of that. And if we're talking about yeah. ephemeral art, the yeah. whole you ripping pages out of Matt's notebook <laughs> and then folding them up and putting <laughs> them in the depths of your bag <laughs> with used tissues might not be so good for the that's historical true. record of your creative process. That's true. That's true. I have, I have had a few poems where I had to like dig through a bunch of papers and be like all right this is a poem i want to salvage and oh i remember yeah. you gave me your only copy of a poem once yeah. and i had to take a picture of it and send it back to you <laughs> i didn't hashtag it or anything the... um but so this actually uh brings this little thought experiment to the idea of writing yeah so in writing the whole drafting process um is a record and i'm wondering vj when you write do you keep all of your drafts do you journal and keep those things and if you write a journal entry that makes you look like an asshole do you keep it or do you tear it out and throw it away i think ultimately i when i do a revision i tend to discard mm -hmm. all drafts because mm -hmm. uh, once i figure once that uh thought has come to its culmination then mm -hmm. like all the older drafts i'd rather get rid of you know so because okay. because i feel like it doesn't represent what i think ultimately my conscious effort was to do mm -hmm. it was just part of the process what so, is, what does it do for you to actually delete those things instead of like archiving them ah uh, well i mean ultimately is it uh, like cathartic yeah it's cathartic yeah, I think it's <laughs> yeah, my, own fear, my fear is that if i do become like famous famous one day someone will archive go through them and like uncover the lost files or something and that doesn't represent what i want I'm going to yeah, sound I like a horrible cynic, but I really hope somebody that I'm famous enough someday for somebody to go through my computer looking for shit to laugh at. Yeah. That'd be awesome. <laughs> that would be, that's, that's the dream, right? That's the dream. Ultimately. Well, yeah. so, so how about this though? Have you ever revised something a bunch of times and then kind of hated it? Like you've done too much plastic surgery on your poem and you wish you could go back? Um, no, the, the, I, until, I'm, until I'm satisfied, then I'll. Then I'll keep the revision. Oh, okay. I'll keep the old dress until I'm like, all right, this is where it needs to be. Do you write in a journal? Uh, not really, no. Oh, well, you should. Yeah, I should, yeah. <laughs> so um, I, when I teach, I sometimes have my students write journals. And as a therapist, as a writing therapist, there's there are free writing exercises that I do with my patients. And I still see frequently when putting their own thoughts on paper just organically – so many of my uh, patients and students and fellow writers have this instinct to just like rip it out and not even just crumple it up, like scratch everything out and shred it and then crumple it up and then throw it in a wastebasket. Oh, wow. I'm wondering, though, um, what that destruction and I don't have an answer for this one. Um, I'm a really big fan of in terms of writing, keeping it. And not necessarily doing with it, doing anything with it, but keeping it as as part of the process. Yeah. But I wonder, is there some I mean, I'm a poet, so I'm already messed up. Like <laughs> I go looking for my difficult emotions and then try to make them more difficult and then try to make them rhyme and stuff and put them on paper. <laughs> but um I wonder what it, it does. It feel good to just rip something up and throw it away. Is that 
Yeah, I mean, I, I even like one that my dream is one day to, because I, I massed all these papers from things I printed out and uh -huh. things that I, I have this whole pile now. That I, I try to keep organized, but it's not really that quite efficient. Is it as but, organized uh, as your notebook? <laughs> no, no, not, not at all. It's, it's, it's totally just true in paper. I would like one day to do like a bonfire, like just like fire <laughs> them all, you know, just burn them all. I don't know. Well, but the equivalent I'm, to that yeah. these days is a computer dying. Yeah, exactly, well. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but there's something visual about the fire and all that. It's yeah. very cathartic uh, about it. I yeah. would totally go there and yeah. take a picture of it on my smart smartphone smart and then post it. Yeah. And then I'd write a poem about it <laughs> and throw the poem away. <laughs> Are we getting meta enough for you? So why don't we go to the next uh, thought experiment? Okay. Yeah. So there's one about, there's this one about the color red. Um, this, I'm not going to read this one. This yeah. is, this is sort of a quick one, but, and it's sort of a la Susan Sontag as well. Um, or no, sorry. So that in terms of the visual processing, but have you ever read the Annie Dillard essay, Seeing? Seeing. I, I might have read in college. It's from, um, uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek that, mm -hmm. okay. So anyway, in this little thought experiment, it, there's no real, like choice to make but it says there's a woman who is who has a disorder of of a vision disorder where she can't see color yeah she just sees everything in grayscale and neurologists have just figured out a way to fix that so that she will have the surgery and then be able to see color um and she is on a waiting list for this. And in the meantime, she's asking herself what the color red would mean to her before and after this process. Yeah. To me, this sort of awakened one of my um, favorite kind of lessons in getting more concrete imagery into poetry. Um, how do we write about color? What is what is red? How how do you write about color the the in a text with no pictures? Mm. How do you write about things like color? Um, oh, you know, let's just stick with color because color is sort of something that we agree the sky is blue. Yeah, but your blue might not be my blue. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, like what I'm seeing, my experience of seeing some color, like a visual cue. Mm -hmm. There's a slight chance that what you're seeing is like either different or somehow. Well, it's definitely go, different. Well, I have to go into your head to be uh, like, do I? You see exactly what I'm seeing, you know? Right. There's no other word really to describe the experience other than to say it's red, you know? I don't think there's much else I can say hmm. uh, in regards to if we see a red flag. I'm like, what else would I say other than saying it's red? I mean, you know, because it's a visual cue, right? But Unless I go is... into more specifically what kind of red it is. And, is it shade third day of a healing bruise red? Or yeah, is exactly. it <laughs> what shade of red? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or like what what flavor of red? Is it a bright and juicy red? Yeah. Maybe or synesthesia is the best we can do with that. It's combining multiple senses. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. We had a guest uh who actually experienced a little bit of that and kind of mixing of sensory inputs, mm -hmm. things like that. Just talk a little bit about that and, and how that can uh inform a poetic practice yeah it, yeah I, in some of my linguistic research uh, for the therapy i'm working on yeah. um the use of synesthesia uh and bringing that past 
just seeing it as a disorder and looking at how it's used in creative people actually has to do with the way that human beings process metaphor at the most basic level of communication um, across languages, which is awesome, but for another show. So we'll move on. Yeah. (laughs) But also I would say in regards to pain, which is the essential problem, uh, you know, when we say it's hurting or I'm pain or I'm sad or any of these emotions, Mm -hmm. to understand in the full context of that person's vocabulary, Mm -hmm. what even they mean sometimes we don't even know or we can't know exactly how you experience pain differently from how I would experience pain. Yeah. Well, that's actually something I work with. Um, It's one of my founding principles of writing therapy is the ability to communicate experience in order to generate empathy rather than sympathy in your reader or listener. Yeah. Um, When a patient comes in, so imagine, oh, here's a thought experiment, right? So a patient uh, has a doctor and the patient regularly visits the doctor and talks about how she's sad. Mm. And the doctor knows a little bit about her and maybe her life's a mess and she has good days and bad days. But her primary complaint is that she is sad all the time. Yeah. <clears throat> so then this patient goes on medication yeah. and comes into the same office and says, I'm still sad or says, well, now I'm worse Right. But what does what does sad even mean? Mm. Um, So think about if your good friend said. If your good friend said, oh, my God, I'm totally going to kill myself. It was the worst day. I'm just going to sit there and eat Ben and Jerry's until I die. Yeah. Are you worried about that friend? No. No, right? There's a relative. Well, context, contextual clues. Yeah. yeah. It, it, but if you think clues. about it. They're contextual clues that have to do with some innate informality, but mm. also the kinds of ways that we deal with certain types of sadness. Yeah. But the key words, I am going to kill myself, are are processed into hyperbole. Yeah. Like we don't. But if your friend didn't call for a few days and then you called her and she said very slowly, leaving space between words. I have just been staring at the wall. I can't finish a thought. No music works for me. I pick up the phone and forget who I'm thinking of calling and put it down. So sorry, I've been out of touch. Are you worried about that person? Yeah, definitely. That would definitely send off a lot of alarm bells, yeah. And so that is something, it demonstrates a lot of things, but Mm. one of them is anhedonia which is the inability to experience pleasure. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about emotions and experiences, we we kind of leave out the blank walls and Ben and Jerry's and the things that could actually make us understand and empathize with another person's experience. Mm. Because the label of sad doesn't really mean anything. Just mm. like, oh, I love saying this. Love doesn't mean anything. It all, all matters in context in context of the person's um, system and their vocabulary and, and with the other, per, other people, the uh, intersection between the two people's um, vocabulary has become, you know, what, when I say I love ice cream or I love you or this kind of thing. Oh, you love me. Yeah. Yeah. What do you love more, ice cream or me? <laughs> tough, Loaded question. Tough, tough call, yeah. <laughs> um, so, That's yeah. so sweet. Yeah. But I'm 
Um, yeah. yeah, so um, the, the cool thing about it is, though, we don't necessarily need to have identical experiences. Like somebody who's lactose intolerant still knows what it is to sit down and eat a pint of Ben and Jerry's. There, yeah. There's something to it. Um, but even just as we know each other, as we get to know each other and observe each other's habits and behaviors, we come to see how certain deviations from habitual behavior correlate to moods or troubles that the person is experiencing. Um, And that becomes an intuitive level of narrative communication Mm. uh, that, for example, patients lack when they're seeing doctors. Doctors don't really have that input. Um, But it is also the same way that we can build strong and dynamic characters in Mm. writing fiction. Yeah. We need to give our characters the depth of not only mood words, but mood experiences. So does the character go to the same cafe every week? If so, it'll be important if she misses that. Like that will signal to the reader that something has changed. Yeah, even in, in improv, they talk about the base reality and the, and the start of the game. Uh, Tell so me what that is. I reality, don't know what you're talking about. The yeah, base reality basically establishes the, um, you know, the norms mm-hmm. of that reality. So, um, for example, if you're saying, like, in your example, every day they go <coughs> to the park. So yeah. you're kind of establishing in some way, or, you, or you're entering the game, uh, the start of the game enters in with the understanding that every day they go to the park. And this is the one day that I didn't go to the park. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the game begins. So the one day, every day at 8 o'clock, I go to the park. This day, I decide to sleep in. Mm-hmm. And then the game begins. Oh, you know, the character would enter saying, oh, what's the matter? Every day you go to the park at 8 a.m. and blah, blah, blah. And then you start you go from there, you know? And so, I'm guessing it would be bad to shut that down saying, I'm hungover. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that, that yeah. would be the humor of the, that would be the game. That would be mm. the humor of the, of the scene to establish some deviation and what, and in improv, of course, you're going for comedy. So, you know, always? Without, without, yeah, yeah. Really? Not always. Well, usually the truth in comedy. Usually, hmm. usually improvis- improvis- improvisation is kind God, of good for you, a laugh. Yeah. If you got me into yeah. improv, I think I'd smash that <laughs> down like, just yeah. intuitively. I'd be like, no, this is very serious. Yeah. But even- Let's express our drama to <laughs> each other. <laughs> Yeah. I think I think even that framework, uh, some going into an improv show, they they take it as a joke. No, know? well, like, yeah, well, or they just to. be sitting there thinking, hey. "Fucking poets." <laughs> yeah, <that would> <laughs> they ruin everything. That would trust a poet. So, um, let's move from poetry to plagiarism. Okay. Uh, there's this. Also, I'm just going to summarize or retell instead of reading because, yeah, frankly, I think the way they put it is kind of lame but uh this is the idea of the story of a forger right so there's this guy and he is a masterful painter um but he's broke like all or most masterful painters are these days and so um in his art classes he learned by doing copies of the old masters and learning technique that way and he was really good at it so He decides that he is going to forge um, a quote-unquote lost work by, let's say, Van Gogh. 
All right. So he does this thing and it's really awesome. And it is absolutely in the style of Van Gogh. And he has matched the um the pigment the pigment composition, the type of paint, the type of canvas. He's gone and sourced original old canvas. Everything is spot on mm. and the painting is great. Yeah. So it is a forgery of style, but it's his own picture. And he's passing it off as a Van Gogh. Yeah. So um, somebody buys it for a shitload of money. Yeah. What is that painting actually worth? Exactly. exactly yeah. Right. So we got a couple things going on here. Unlike a normal forgery or copy. Well, and, and it would apply to that, too. Yeah. If I copy something by hand using the same technique as an original artist. Why is it that the original is valued as more? I mean, in in there you could see the unique idea, but in this thought experiment, the artist has had a unique idea and is copying style, but then choosing to add value to his own work by attributing that work to somebody else. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely I can see the distinction between copying the exact image and and uh and, and i'm passing it off as that right. artifact as like it was that artifact and not mm-hmm. a new artifact and i can see how saying it's a van gogh but rather that um uh but not one of his original paint you know not a painting by well, him, saying but that in his style like it was one oh, of no, 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 lost no. painting lost so painting, yeah. so yeah so this lost artist painting. has created this mm. and then arranged for somebody to find it i'll find it yeah. right and yeah. so it's being introduced to the world as an original van gogh mm. that has been sitting in some attic somewhere attic, yeah. so he's sort of doing the opposite it's like Reverse why? plagiarism, yeah, I guess. Why would you do that? Yeah, I mean, why would you do that? Yeah, I mean, because he, he owns but, this thing. Yeah, yeah he so he's doing money, this yeah. to make money. Make money, yeah. But it's his work. Yeah. So I guess the idea of ownership and inspiration and value. Yeah. Um, what about so and and this is uh, this is sort of a bigger question about provenance and. And the idea of what gives work its value. Mm. What do you think about the fact that this beautiful thing that's been created just by saying it was done by somebody long dead yeah. is is giving it more value? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, definitely. I think that uh, there's a misplacement of value on that. Certain, I mean, what we're valuing is not so much the... Um, the person and the and the like you know the person obviously is long mm-hmm. gone, but uh, the we should be putting the value on the ability or the the craftsmanship of the artifact. Mm-hmm. You know, if we were to find a, a scribbling and say this and actually was Van Gogh, that would still wh- be why why yeah why I'm questioning why you know just some scribbling he doodled something. Like, why would it be valuable oh, just because Vijay, Van Gogh created it? It would know? be valuable just, for the it. same reasons that as soon as you are a fancy-ass famous author, <laughs> I'm going to go back and find all of your old drafts of everything <laughs> yeah. and sell them. And then I might have enough money to become a real writer, too. Exactly. <laughs> no, but have you read um, Benjamin's Art in the Age of Reproduction? Uh, no, no. Okay, so I'm not even going to try to summarize all of that, but yeah. it's essentially talking about the idea of 
value and what gives something value. So everybody should go read that. Yeah. Here's your homework for next Monday. There will be a quiz. No. Okay. So if you haven't read that, we'll abandon yeah. that and move yeah. on to the next thing we can discuss. But yeah, it's it's very it, it's very interesting this idea of of brand naming art because there are plenty of people, uh plenty of up and coming very like totally open-minded liberal all about personal expression and people who are kind of like oh well i'm not gonna wear brand name stuff you know yeah. i want to support small businesses i am i'm not gonna wear something that says gucci on it or yeah. you know mark jacobs all over it but then if you offered that person an original piece of art I think they'd be pretty tickled by it. Yeah. So what is the difference between focusing on, let's call it authorship, even though it's about art, um, this particular example, what is the difference between authorship and branding? Exactly. exactly. Is, think, I'm asking you. I, I, I think, don't know. Yeah, and I, callers, call in, please. 718-928-9732. Hassan Minaj had done an episode on Supreme, which actually I I think I'd seen them around. I'd seen the logo around, but it didn't quite emerge into my conscious mind. But then uh, it's a it's a I guess it's a when I remember from the episode, it's basically a brand that emerged out of skater culture, Mm -hmm. and then it. uh, But people can call it. If only we had Matt on the show right now, he could tell us all about it. And basically, it's it's something's all hype. It's a Mm -hmm. brand that's all hype. Like they appropriate various. uh, styles and, and, and motifs from various uh, logos and mm-hmm. various uh, artistic movements and they just pipe it all together and they create these products and you know they kind of it's all like word of mouth kind of a thing mm-hmm. so um so that is all branding as opposed to authorship or, or substance you i know? guess i'm kind of talking about the idea of not just the idea of the brand um giving value to something yeah but elevating it. So, for example, uh, brand name designer clothes. I have had occasion to borrow uh, some really kind of nice clothing. I obviously can't afford to buy it. Yeah. But it does It does kind of sometimes fit better. Mm. Um, I understand not why it's that expensive, but... I understand why some things by certain designers are just better made, right? But then if I order something from Etsy, from an individual designer, sometimes that's really well made too. And there is no branding to that. Mm. So obviously, there's the market is not cornered in terms of quality. And when you think about that in terms of art, even more so, what makes a Van Gogh more valuable than a vjr nathan yeah if you were to paint something now and it were brilliant what where do those extra zeros come from yeah i mean i think that a lot of people have their um their their assumptions about certain brands they also have there's so much stuff being produced so much stuff being uh content so much content being put out there that Mm -hmm. for them to discern and be like oh i'm going to spend my time investigating this or that there has to be like a, a brand awareness, you know, mm-hmm. as it penetrates through that fog of undifferentiated, you know, just looking at all this noise. It has to really emerge from that fog. And in order for it to do that, there's got to be a lot of chatter or hype and, 
and this hype is produced by Bran, you know? So let's so, talk Shakespeare. Yeah. What do you think about Shakespeare? Yeah, I, I enjoy watching his plays. I enjoy watching his plays. I don't so much enjoy reading them. Okay. Uh, like sitting down and reading them. Uh, but I do need to read them before I see them. Okay. So like I've re- the plays that I've read and kind of understood and uh, internalized, like Hamlet, Macbeth, um, you know, the major ones, uh, mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet, all this kind of stuff. Then when I see it produced, I'm like, I really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. But um, stuff, when I, when I went to England uh, a number of years ago, and I just saw plays that I hadn't really read. Mm-hmm. I just saw productions of plays I hadn't read or wasn't as familiar with. Uh, I didn't get as much enjoyment out of them. Okay. You know? Yeah, I didn't enjoy them as much. Did so. you study Shakespeare when you were in? Yeah, in college. Yeah. So what, from from what you know of Shakespeare, when you, when, if I were to say Shakespeare scholar. Yeah. What would you, what would that kind of, what would yeah. you think of that? I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think it would be interesting to see how. Yeah, you know, I, I would be neutral. neutral okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would be neutral. Very neutral. That's so I mean, strange. I wouldn't be like, I wouldn't be enthralled because I think okay. that sometimes people get a little too right. Okay. So things. yeah. So yeah. Um. I I guess one thing about if you're talking about branding or authorship in terms of like quality or assuming something is the best, I, yeah. I was about to say maybe that part of it has to do with a scholarly or artistic canon. Yeah. But in a way for me in Shakespeare, it's, I, I enjoy it. Um, it's, I am a, like I enjoy modern and jazz poetry. Yeah. Like that's just my style. And Shakespeare's mm-hmm. very not that, but obviously learn a lot from him. But the thing that gets lost when Shakespeare is taught now is sort of the original intention. So a lot of Shakespeare was meant meant to be performed mm. and not read. Yeah. Um and meant to appeal to uh meant to appeal broadly. Broadly, yeah. So not just to aristocrats, exactly. but also to they would have said commoners back yeah. then in the penny seats, right? So these plays, it, it was very much a theater where the wealthy would have their wealthy spots, but then the whole floor would be um, just you and me, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so uh, now when we think of Shakespeare scholar, when we talk about, when knowing about Shakespeare becomes synonymous with being well-read, yeah, it's kind of the work that Shakespeare has created is performing a very different function in mm. today's scholarly, academic, and entertainment scene than it did in terms of why he produced it. And when he created these things, a lot of the time it was on commission. Yeah, right. So that's also a different way of working. And so far, none of my students who had read Shakespeare in high school or college before they get to me, nobody really got that. And they were kind of amazed. And like, wow, this stuff is really intimidating. I feel so stupid because I haven't read that. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. You know, do you even understand the context? And and they didn't. They yeah. just knew Shakespeare equals good. That's why I would be neutral about a scholar. Because I have to know whether or not that scholar is like along the lines of, Constantly elevating to the cerebral, or whether or not they're actually engaged with the work, in, with the history, with the history, and they're engaged with it as being a performative piece and an understanding of that. You know, yeah, it's very easy to fall into the trap of like over analyzing and becoming very scholarly, and becoming to the point where only scholars can speak to scholars, and right. you can't really 
engage or, or understand what they're talking about, you know? Yeah, because it would be yeah, this is this is one of the, I guess, dangers of of overthinking the value of authorship because mm. it I, I think it encourages people to pretend to l- like things that they don't. Yeah. Or to not look further in and explore their own tastes, but just to kind of go. And there's a lot of talk about this with the literary canon in college teaching yeah. right now. So it used to be uh, at liberal arts schools that there were certain headliners in terms of pieces of literature that students should read for whatever reason. And this was pretty consistent, like across colleges. Every yeah. student reads some Shakespeare at some point. It just yeah. will be in any Brit lit or world literature, any big review of literature class. And now, um, and if you're a teacher or an enthusiastic student, you know that there just isn't time in, mm. in at all, but definitely within a semester to really cover a broad spectrum of literature. Yeah. So the canon sought to kind of reduce this to, I guess, the most important yeah. But now that's being questioned, because first of all, that was the literary canon was kind of established by old white dudes yeah. and left out like the rest of the world, <laughs> kind of. But it just in general, uh, it the idea of a canon is challenging for teachers because it homogenizes the teaching platform. And there's a debate about this. Do we want every English class to be I guess, quality controlled Mm. in terms of readings or do we want to trust teachers to trust the fact that we hire teachers for unique reasons and we're using teachers and not robots um, and to let them bring that experience into the classroom and choose their own work without having to justify uh, veering off from the canon. Yeah, I know. It's my experience as an English teacher in high school. A very brief time, but, uh, you know, I wanted to do certain... Because uh, when I went into the school and got interviewed for the school as part of the teaching fellows, one of the schools I interviewed for, I noticed in their book room, in their in the room they had for storing the uh, literature they were, they were supposedly teaching, mm-hmm. they had all, the, all <laughs> these amazing... Supposedly teaching. Allegedly teaching. Uh, <laughs> they had all these classics and interesting books, and I was like, oh, these are very dynamic collection of, of titles that i would be able to draw from right to teach but then when i got there they end up the administration was like oh you can't teach any of those books in there they very much underestimated the abilities of the students because okay. they weren't performing you know right so so it's the, sort of like pitching down to the lowest yeah. instead of so it's taking the idea of casting a broad net and Corrupting that a little bit mm. to just underestimating. I I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. I um. We have to speak to the highest point of the student and and speak and bring bring in the literary value. With lit- I think literary value has to do with the language, language use. Yeah. So you want you don't want to when you're in high school you want to start pitching a little bit higher because you want to allow them to start to acquaint themselves with you know language use and usage and and literature that is a little bit higher than you know rather than pitching it lower you know and and also we need to let students screw up yeah we need to be less i I think our grading system is is sort of strange and definitely teaching toward testing is Mm. totally messed up yeah if you think about it there's there's no 
I don't think there's really a focus on grammar in that, whereas yeah. grammar and language are the are it's our first introduction to the world. And as soon as you unlock those doors, then you do have access to this range of literature. But um, yeah, I think there's so there's so much pressure on teachers to have a class full of students who get A's that teachers, I don't know, at least in college, uh, a lot of I and a lot of my fellow adjuncts are kind of terrified to hand out too many C's, let alone D's and F's, because then teaching evaluations come around and suddenly my being a realistic grader turns into me being mean and unclear and and Uh all of these other things. And so there's this, this pressure. I think this is adding to the problem of, I guess, lowballing our yeah. standards here. There's this pressure to see students complete units successfully. Yeah. Whereas my favorite book is a book that I've read, I've taught in 14 different semesters. I've read it 16 times and I reread it every semester and every semester I learn something new. I have not completed my studies on that book in 16 readings. Yeah. So it's kind of strange that we expect students to complete a book, complete a paper on the book and then move on. Uh. Right. When I don't know. I find that writing and reading and creating in general is a lot about obsession and going over things again and again and trying out new ideas instead of just trying to get the right answer or guess yeah. what a teacher is thinking about. And something from that, I think that one thing that comes to mind now is one of the most affecting books, effect, uh, you know, like affecting books, uh, had the most effect on me was uh, The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. And Can we tell us about, a little bit about I, I'll that? Tell a little bit about that and, and about what, it, what topic that brings into Static Verses was a book that Salman Rushdie wrote that was basically subversive to Islam. Mm-hmm. So it was very, um, uh, it brought up a narrative about the Prophet, uh, that, uh, Prophet Muhammad that uh, Islamic people found very offensive, highly offensive. And I guess I can understand why. But he got, as we got a fatwa on him, mm-hmm. a death threat, a death sentence. And he had to hide, uh, go into hiding for several years, many years, 10, 10 12 years, I think. And he wrote a book. Um, uh, you know about his experience going under hiding and, and being uh, running from the uh, Ayatollah from uh, who had put the, the fatwa mm. on him. So my uh, my point also bringing that up is that you know in in teaching works mm-hmm. these these ideas now we have a culture of you know that we have to have a trigger warning and and what what will bring up emotions in people mm. and what will um, what kinds of literature and I think it's important in some ways to. In soft ways, in, in schooling and in, in safe spaces, to be able to to confront literature that is challenging to our viewpoint mm. and challenging to our perspective, our comfortable perspective, because that's where true growth comes out of. Right. So when I when I read that, even though I I, I don't I, I'm not aligned with Islam, I did see I I did appreciate a great deal of what it had to do about religion and about and had to do with uh, um, our spirituality, our deep humanness. Mm-hmm. It was also a very funny book, and it was at very moments of wild humor. Mm-hmm. So my my uh, objective in in, in our, my education curve had to do with breaking through those mm-hmm. kind of dogmas. And and Last Patient of Christ is another book that those two books, Last Patient of Christ and Last Versus, Temptation, Last Temptation okay. of Christ, uh, and Sank Versus were two uh, works. I also saw the film of Last Temptation, but uh, those two works were amazingly breakthroughs for me mm-hmm. and i think that's how you grow and that's how you, you learn you know so yeah what do you think about this idea of 
trigger warnings. And, oh, and yes. Kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I have never taught in the high school environment. Um, mm-hmm. I do work with uh, late high school through adult as a therapist, as yeah. a writing therapist. Um, and I work with college students, and that often feels like I'm being a therapist. Yeah. But the reality is, at least with adjuncts, we're not trained. I have the... I have the benefit of the fact that I've been a therapist longer than I've been a teacher. Um, Originally, I studied psychology and various different disorders and the arts and did a lot of research on my own. And I've been a therapist for almost nine years now. But my my fellow adjuncts don't have any experience or training in dealing with the types of emotional situations that critical thought can Mm. lead to, should lead to even. Um, And I guess this is just, there are so many reasons for this. First of all, it's a lot cheaper for schools to just keep hiring new adjuncts and getting rid of the ones who become too expensive as they get seniority. That's bad. Um, but also even the idea of learning by experience is great, except in, in this extremely underpaid, but yet highly competitive, uh, realm of employment, teachers don't feel safe in their jobs or Mm. as scholars or in terms of how they will be viewed or judged by their departments. They don't feel they don't have the skills necessary to deal with. Um, I mean, some do, of course, some do, mm. but uh, oftentimes there there's a little discussion at at least at CUNY at some of the places where I work. There are volunteer voluntary discussions where we talk about these issues, but we're not paid to attend those. Yeah. Um, they don't necessarily influence our getting more or less classes. Yeah. Uh, the incentive is being a better teacher, but there's very little incentive from our employers to become better teachers. Yeah. Right. Because like I said, as we as we stay on, we are more expensive to employ and we'll be replaced by two other people. So, so it's also is like when it has to do with the conjugal emotions in the students they, they're just not equipped. To well, it's, it or... it's more it's easier to stick with the textbook. Yeah. To just look you know have everything go well on paper Mm. and to avoid basically there's no incentive for teachers to get training and and put themselves out there in terms of allowing their students to be emotionally vulnerable and being confident enough to handle that situation and turn conflict um into a teaching moment exactly right this has become a bigger issue in our current political environment Um, and it's, we are encouraged, um, at CUNY, we are encouraged to allow and moderate respectful political discussions. Although, and, and here's me probably shooting myself in the foot because this is controversial. Yeah. Um, in CUNY, there is a lot of pressure to teach there's a lot of pressure on teachers to kind of control that conversation toward the majority like political agenda yeah um which and and of course of course there are certain things that are just wrong and it is totally awesome to just 
establish a this is right, this is wrong in the classroom. Yeah. But I'm talking even more like pressure on who to we get emails um saying CUNY supports this or that candidate. Yeah. Which to me kind of treads on ethical issues because sending a statement out about CUNY's core values, awesome. Yeah. When you get a very specific, you're kind of almost saying when that you're told, you should be on board. You know, well, otherwise you're not. And it giving yeah. the name of a candidate to vote yeah. for. Yeah. Without a discussion of like why not to vote for the others, yeah. or with basically it's discouraging. It's, it's discouraging. Um, it, it it it's leading to incomplete inquiry, and it's not encouraging um, people to do the research and decide for themselves. Like obviously, guidance is good, but there yeah. there's this have- fine line when we have discussions like this in the classroom yeah. are we influencing our students too much are we leaning toward our own agendas mm. like i said at cuny it's a lot of us at cuny share the same views and yeah. so but we can sometimes get lost in that yeah. a little bit but also when it gets to the point where they're like you know banning books so they're saying that teachers shouldn't teach these things or teach those things it, it right. kind of implies that uh, also from this discussion they shouldn't think these things or think that oh, they're both for these things or both for those things. Then you, as you start to push your specific agenda, you're starting to really control and, and regulate what, right. what exactly you're saying, what exactly you're, what viewpoints and perspectives you're promoting. And, yeah. and for example, um, I think it would make some students who come from different backgrounds afraid to ask the question, like, why is the border wall bad? Yeah. Right. They're prepared to come in and say, I have learned that a border wall is bad, but that doesn't actually teach them anything. If they Mm. felt comfortable asking the question, like coming in and saying, hey, now I'm again, this is such a hot button issue. I feel like I have to protect myself by saying I think it's ridiculous, totally against it. I'm on on the side of all that is good here. But I want a student to be able to come in and say, I don't know, the border wall seems like a good idea. Why, why, what are the problems with it? And yeah. for us to have a debate so that by the time we leave the classroom, everybody, everybody's views have been acknowledged. And then hopefully the socially just positive view prevails. Yeah. Can I change that at the end of the day? Uh. No, I can't force my students to think anything, but we get to a dangerous point if they're so worried about, what they think they're supposed to be thinking that they don't know how to ask the questions to get a fuller understanding because they're embarrassed or they feel like they'll be judged. I conversation is always a good thing. Yeah, you know? no, it's true. And I think that it's very important to recognize that um, everyone has their opinions, but also everyone should be informed about those opinions. Right. And in you the know? classic, I, I was, I was such a nerdy high school debater, but in the, in the spirit of critical thinking and debate, we were required to debate both sides of issues, um, whether we believed in them or not, as part of the learning process. And I kind of fear that that's going away a little bit, not in terms of trying to necessarily change people's minds or acknowledge. It's not about acknowledging positive sides of um political agendas that we find to be destructive but we can better argue for our cause if we understand why people believe the other stuff 
-hmm. right? And so in the traditional style of debate, every time we debated an issue, we're required to debate both sides. And it had nothing to do with how we thought. It was to as much to make us more informed about the beliefs we walked into the room with. Yeah. It, it wasn't about changing our minds one way or the other. Exactly, exactly. Although sometimes it does change people's minds in a positive way. Well, we should always go for the intentionality of just addressing concerns and, and informing and open up pathways for understanding and communication. Exactly. Rather than... The end product of, you know, you have to believe this, this, and this. Right, right. Rather going through the process yeah. of inquiry and understanding. So that then the concerns that the border wall addresses, for example, you know, we're addressing those concerns. Rather, well, and, and yeah. just talk, just figuring out how did we get here? Yeah. How did we yeah. get to this situation? Right. Because okay. this didn't come out of nowhere. And I think at least some of my students feel like the world just changed overnight. Mm. And suddenly there are all these problems when it's so much more complicated than that. So now that's a good place to, uh, to end. <laughs> Let's end <But> yeah, there. <laughs> that's a good place to culminate. So you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, Radio Free Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you to help support our mission. Um, make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. Um, also, if you're listening to this on your uh, computer, please free yourself up by going to readyforbrooklyn.org slash iPhone or slash Android, and you can listen to it from the phone. Um, you can take us with you, you anywhere. With you anywhere. And, and, and just like those people who have their earphones in, are going through the street, you can be listening to us like that, or if you are, yeah, you can be totally yeah. ignoring what you're doing yeah. in the moment and yeah. listening to yeah. us archived <laughs> instead, talking about archiving things. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks so much for being with us. We're going to listen to um, Feel Good Incorporated by Gorillas. Let's see. <laughs> Feel good. 